I'm Candy Easley, and it is so exciting for me to get to preach on joy this morning. And it's a challenge, I think, for us right now to lean into joy. And so I would just invite you to think in this moment, what is joy to you? What's a joyful moment to you? I asked one of my friends this, and I'm so glad that she responded in text because then I can share it with you. She said, I recognize joy in my body, calm, peaceful, right, bubbly, a new baby, the breeze as you ride a bike. It'd be great today, wouldn't it? Your people lingering around a table or sleeping under the same roof, or some might add, under the stars. A whole day away. Sweat from doing exercise that you love. Really connecting with only eye contact. We've had that opportunity wearing masks for so long, haven't we? What is joy to you? I had the truly great joy of thinking about joy for these past couple weeks. And I ran across a poem by an author, a poet, and a professor named Toy Dercote. She wrote a poem, the title of which has become kind of one of those slogans that people put on little canvas bags and refrigerator magnets and stuff like that. The title of the poem is Joy as an Act of Resistance. Joy as an act of resistance. And then unexpectedly, her poem starts like this. Why would a black woman need a fish to love? Why did she need a flash of red living in the corner of her eye? She goes on, what does her love of the fish have to do with 500 years of sorrow? Then joy coming up like a small breath, like a bubble. There's something to me about the juxtaposition of her words. She holds a great love for her fish and its flashing red tail. Yet she simultaneously holds a sorrow for 500 years since the African diaspora and the impact of slavery. Maybe that's not your story. But maybe today you carry something that threatens to steal your joy or to hold you back even from thinking about joy. You're you're trying to put me off right now. Maybe it's something heavy in your family. Maybe it's a secret abuse or a suicide attempt or maybe it's depression or bipolar disorder, or maybe it's a deep exhaustion from 16 months of trying to do your job on Zoom or trying to teach your kids at home, amen, right? Or maybe you couldn't hold on to your job. Or maybe you don't feel comfortable getting the vaccine. Or maybe you're wondering today, where's God in the midst of this whole thing? And you can't find your way back to joy. Well, the good news today is that we're going to look at how Jesus brings joy. Please pray with me. Mighty God, we thank you that you invite us into this life of the Spirit 
this life that carries sorrow and joy all at the same time. And God, I ask that you would anoint this room, that you would anoint every watcher on our live stream today, that we might have a glimpse of your joy, that we might have a glimpse of your purposes, of your power, of your promises, of your prayer for us, that in you, our joy can be complete. So come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit, speak to us now. We ask in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we're doing each week, we are looking at something in the life of Christ that brings out this fruit of the Spirit. So last week, we looked at love. And it's so great to me that love precedes joy. Love comes first. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And we're gonna look at the purpose for which he sent his only son today. We're gonna use this story of Jesus' first miraculous sign. And I bet some of you know what it is. Hear the story. This is out of John chapter two, one through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had been invited. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he asks you. Nearby stood six stone water jugs, the kind that were used for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. And he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, the first thing that caught public attention was to turn water into wine. So we're going to look at these three ways that this miracle story, that this event brings out the joy of Jesus. First, we're going to look at the joy that Jesus had in saving the world, the joy that he had in living into his purpose, and that we can have that joy as well. And then we're going to look at the joy of the ordinary becoming extraordinary. This is Jesus' promise. He takes the ordinary stuff of life and transforms it into something extraordinary. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at the joy of completeness, the joy of Jesus finishing what he came to do, the joy of Jesus' prayer, that his joy could be in us that we could have that same kind of completeness. 
So here we go on our journey. First, the joy of saving the world. I just love this passage and there's so much in it. It's, it starts with on the third day. And when we think of the third day, it's often Easter. It's, it's from Good Friday to Easter, three days until he rose again. So right at the beginning of this story, we have this kind of foreshadowing of who Jesus is. On the third day, there was a wedding. It was in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus and his friends were there. And Jesus' mother was there. And I sort of picture in my own mind what that might look like. Jesus about 30, hanging out with his friends. Mary in her late 40s, hanging out with her friends. And something happens. And I'm so curious. How did Mary know they were out of wine? Was her table drinking a little more? Like, hey, there's no more wine here at our table. Like, hey, we got to do something about this because it would be such a great shame and dishonor for that groom in particular to hold a wedding feast at which they ran out of wine. You see, in that day, a wedding was something that you prepared for about a year. And the expense of the wedding was on the groom. And he was supposed to provide everything that was needed for the feast. And that's why it took about a year to kind of save up and even truly make the wine. So this would show that he had a lack of preparation. And Mary's concern would be, this is how this wedding is gonna be remembered. Now, weddings can be remembered for a lot of things, for the poignant moment that it is, for the powerful moment that it is, and also for the mistakes that happen. At my own wedding, literally almost 40 years ago, I had that moment of throwing the bouquet and, you know, kind of drum roll, please. And I tossed the bouquet over my back. And where did it land? Not in some bridesmaids or one of my friend's arms. It landed in the chandelier. <laughs> yep. And so they had to go get like a window opener. And the whole kind of gathering started to be cheering for the bouquet to come back down out of the chandelier. My husband, who's also a pastor, uh, officiated at a wedding, and there was a lot of kind of uh, joking around between he and the groom. So my husband wore his alma mater tie, USC. The groom was from University of Washington, and the groom's dad was from another rival school of USC. And that groom's dad at one point in the reception just decided he wanted to demonstrate the victory that his team would have over USC by cutting my husband's tie off. Just right there in the moment. You know how we all remember that wedding? When my husband's tie got cut off. I've heard of weddings where someone showed up that nobody knew was a member of the family. There was a half-sister there was a child that had been adopted and nobody knew that that child was part of the family. There have been second weddings when there are children on each side who may be a little uncertain about welcoming this step-parent into their family. At my daughter's wedding just last summer, her birth mother and her family were there. And there was a sense of joy and of sorrow that my daughter hadn't been raised maybe for her with that other family. And yet there we all stood. Joy, love, sorrow, kind of commingled at a wedding. And I wonder if that's what Jesus was experiencing when he was at this wedding. 
When Mary came over to him, was he sort of musing about the future of this couple? Wondering, are they going to make it? Maybe even thinking to myself, well, if they ran out of wine, that's a bad sign for their future. Maybe he was thinking about his own future, as all of us are want to do at weddings. When promises are being made, we wonder, can we fulfill our own promises? Will we one day make those promises or break those promises? For Jesus, in this moment of the wedding, when his mother walks up to him, he's not ready. He's not ready to do a miracle. He's not ready to reveal who he is. And he says to his mother in a sort of, it feels like a sharp tone, doesn't it? Mother, what does this have to do with me? Why are you bringing me this problem? This isn't my problem. I'm not ready to reveal who I am. It's an amazing moment. And I would love to know what went on in his head. Because Mary turns to the servants and she says to them, do whatever he tells you. It's such a profound statement of faith on her part. He's just spoken to her, mother, this has nothing to do with me. And she turns around and acts in faith. She knows that Jesus is going to have the joy and the sorrow of saving the world. That he is going to one day fulfill his purpose. How does she know? Maybe because of the virgin birth, she knows where he came from or wonders where he came from. She's raised the kid. She watched him sitting in the temple. She watched him learning God's word. She's thinking there's going to come a time and this work that you've come to do is is going to start. I don't know what it's going to look like. For many people, perhaps including Mary, the thought was that Jesus would be absolutely victorious over all evil right in that moment as soon as he revealed himself. Christus victor. But for Jesus, there's more than that. Maybe he has a sense of what's going to be involved. It's, it's not a galloping kind of victory with big banners. It's a cross that he's going to face. So he turns the corner to that cross. An author that I've enjoyed, Brene Brown, she writes about shame, and she has a book called Daring Greatly. She talks about something that she calls foreboding joy. This is a sense that although there's great joy in this moment, it will lead to great disappointment. Or that whatever is in store for us next will be very difficult. Maybe at a wedding, someone is anticipating uh, or realizing their own life, their own story, infertility, an untimely death, a tragic accident, a vocational crisis, or maybe it's even larger. Maybe in your family story, there's genocide or racism or injustice or brutality or addiction foreboding joy. That's what Jesus had. But he somehow leaves it aside. He somehow turns the corner and and embraces what comes next. And this is what he does. Point two, the joy of the ordinary becoming extraordinary. 
This is Jesus' promise. So first of all, he's at kind of an ordinary wedding in Cana. It's kind of a rural village. It's not a big royal wedding. It's a, it's a smaller type of wedding. And he's going to do a couple of things. He's going to take this kind of ordinary wedding, and it's going to be a wedding that we're still talking about today. It's going to be a wedding that's remembered as the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And then he's going to take the ordinary stuff of water. The water that was in these jugs was for ceremonial washing. It was what the the, uh, Jewish people would welcome each other, the washing of the hands, kind of the ceremonial purification. And remembering that in, in Judaism, there are lots of laws that are being fulfilled, including ceremonial washing. So Jesus is gonna take this water that was put aside for ceremonial washing, and he's gonna use it for a new purpose. He's gonna take what was kind of ordinary water for cleaning, And he's going to make it the best wine that that wine steward, who is probably kind of like the best man, has ever tasted. And then let's look as well that Jesus is going to take these ordinary servants, like the waiters at the wedding, and he's going to have them be the ones who actually have the inside scoop, like the plot of a movie. These are the ones who know what's going on behind the scenes. In his commentary, Dale Bruner calls this the doing of all doings. He says this, Jesus gives these simple directions to the servants. Fill the water jugs, draw out the water, and take it. And the promised results are extraordinary. And this combination of Mary's word and Jesus' word is for us as well. Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And that word is meant for us. Do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus says, take, fill, draw, and take. Bruner says this, we have no required absolutes in our history, like completely surrender to me and do all these exceptional obediences. Rather, Jesus says, fill, draw, take. There's a simplicity of these human components in the middle of this miracle story. And as usual for John's gospel, the human backdrop for divine gifts is simplicity. We do simple things. Jesus does saving things. He takes our simple act and he he makes it extraordinary. Do whatever he tells you. And he tells you, fill, draw, take. Martin Luther points out that Mary doesn't say to Jesus, make more wine. She says they have no more wine. They're needy, they're thirsty. And she trusts in his kindness to respond. And he does. He responds. And as he responds in this first miraculous sign, it's a gesture of joy. And yet for him, it's almost a gesture of sorrow. The joy of the ordinary, what had been Jesus' ordinary life in many ways, is now becoming extraordinary. 
he not only makes water into wine, he makes about 150 gallons of good wine. And he doesn't just do it on the little crafts or or pitchers or whatever was on the tables. He uses these giant jugs. I did some math and I calculated that this would be something like 2,000 glasses, eight ounce glasses of wine. In this rural wedding party, why did they need 2,000 glasses? I don't think they did. I think it was God's abundance. Now, mothers of drunk drivers and many of you who, of us who might have a tendency to over-imbibe, this is not an okay to over-imbibe, though I know weddings with an open bar are a delight. This is rather an encouragement to see Jesus' abundance. Jesus is for joy. He's for gatherings. He's for hospitality. He's for joy over shame and fear. So when they ran out of wine, who knew? Maybe Mary's table, maybe the waiters. When do we run out of wine, so to speak? When do we run out of that will to keep our promise, to get up in the morning, to do another Zoom call? Can we see that Jesus wants to provide? He wants to take like our ordinary obedience and do something amazing with it. That's part of Jesus' promise. He can turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. And then lastly, we come to this idea of the joy of completeness. These miracles that Jesus performed are not merely superhuman happenings. Almost every miracle restores a fallen creation, restores sight to the blind, restores the ability to walk to the lame, The dead even rise. When we believe in God, when we accept that Jesus' purposes and promises are true, we see that God is restoring all things in the person of Jesus. And this is Jesus' prayer, that it would happen through us, through our ordinary hands, through our eyes, what we see, through our ears, what we hear and how we respond, through our life stories, through our bank accounts, through our tender mercies, our forgiveness, our joy, our partnerships, our collaborations. John 15 says, abide in my love, keep the commandments so that it's for a purpose that you may have joy, complete joy. Can we lean into that today? What would that look like? As I mentioned, I started asking people, what's joy to you? And I I asked a surgeon who, who talked about the joy of a job well done when a surgery and a recovery goes well. I asked my daughter, who's a speech pathologist, and she said, mom, it's that one time when someone was choking and I was able to call the code and they saved the person's life. I asked my yoga teacher, And she said, it's when I know that everybody's fully engaged in class. They're into it. They're on it. They're they're present. I asked the caregiver of my aunt who's in the hospital. And she said, joy is knowing that my care makes a difference. And I asked someone I love to go and uh, 
have breakfast at her restaurant. It's actually a wait person. As she pours coffee in my dad and my dad's friend who's 93 and my coffee cups, she pours out the spirit of God. And so the other day, I asked Gladys, our wait person, uh, what do you think joy is? And she turned to me and she said, Candy, because now we know each other's name. We've been so often. Candy, joy, joy. I can only say it in Spanish. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I said, Gladys, how, how do you get that strength? And I realized that she has a little notepad that she carries around every day. And, and she makes notes if she needs to remember someone's order. And at the very top of her notepad, there's some sort of reminder for the day. And, and it's highlighted, sometimes highlighted in different colors. And, and she shared this with me on different times. But she said, Kendi, this is what I remember every day. God put me here to bring joy to the people I serve, the people I know, the people I love. So she uses her little notepad to remind herself with kind of the thought for the day. In a book that I've recently been enjoying um, by Tarana Burke and Brene Brown, it's called You Are the Best Thing. There's a, this is a collection of different stories. And there's one article by a woman that I've read, uh, read before. Her name is Austin Channing. And she talks about the challenge of holding on to joy as a black woman. She says, when I look into my little boy's eyes and wonder if his life will mirror Trayvon Martin's, I silently thank Trayvon for his life and Sabrina Fulton for sharing his story. And I lean over to my little boy, kissing the top of his head. I let my heart swell with joy over his very existence in my life. For that little personality that's intrigued by zippers and pockets and hoods. I will love him harder, and in this become softer. I will be vulnerable, open to being hurt, because I trust that my joy in him cannot be taken away. Our joy cannot be taken away, because it is the joy of Jesus. There's a gospel writer and pastor. Uh, she's now in her 80s, um, but she, uh, Shirley Caesar, sings this song, the joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. The joy I have, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. And why is that? Because Jesus fulfilled his purpose. The only other time uh, that Jesus speaks to his mother in John's gospel using the word mother is when he's hanging on the cross. He looks at his mother and he sees her standing beside the beloved disciple, which we think is John. And he says, mother, behold your son. And then very shortly after that, he says, it is finished. It is made complete. There is no greater joy than knowing that the God of the universe is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Let's grab onto joy. Let's go for a ride with Jesus, a joy ride. Please pray with me. Transforming God, we come today like Mary, sort of tugging at you, saying we, we've run out. We, we've run out of, of energy. 
And, and here in Seattle, we've run out of ways to keep cool right now. We need something. We need the wind of your spirit. We need more wine, so to speak. Good wine. Enough for all, even flowing over. Lord God, we don't want to keep silent. We want to come to you and say we are needy. We are vulnerable. We will join with the family of God. We'll be united. We'll have one voice. We'll sing psalms and hymns and praise. And we'll be the ones to do whatever Jesus says. We'll fill up jars for the thirsty. And we'll be ready to serve the new wine. We'll be ready to say yes. So come, Lord Jesus. Come with your joy. Fill us up, we ask, that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit called joy. In Jesus' name, amen.